to study your word, we ask that you enlighten us by it, open our eyes to see your truth, and transform us by the power of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In these final chapters of the book of Isaiah, we are observing and studying these rich prophecies that God gives through the prophet Isaiah. Last time, we finished roughly in the middle of chapter 65, and we saw two groups of people. We saw the rebels and the remnant, those who reject God and those who seek him, those who choose to reject God and those who choose to seek him. God describes the groups as grapes, two sets of grapes on one cluster. The, the, the grapes that are destined for destruction, the rotten grapes, the bad grapes, and the good grapes, both on one, crust, one cluster. And so we saw last time in verse 8 of chapter 65 that God distinguishes between, between the grapes. He culls the grapes. He separates some to preserve them, or if you prefer, to save them. And he separates others unto destruction. The word destruction is used twice in verse 8 of chapter 65. There are three terms to describe the remnant, which are the good grapes, those who choose to seek God. The three terms that we saw last time are the offspring from Jacob, the tzerah, or the seed. Tzerah is the Hebrew word, offspring or seed of Jacob, my chosen ones and my servants. Those are the three terms. And we'll see each of these terms in one form or another before the book is finished. Last time we ended with the destiny of each of these two groups. For the remnant, we saw multifold blessing, both physical blessing and spiritual blessing. For the rebels, we saw multifold judgment, both physical and spiritual. That's just by way of review of what we studied last time. So let's get to our passage today, which is verses 17 through 25 of chapter 65. Let me read the entire passage, and then we'll look at it in a bit more detail. Verse 17 of chapter 65 of Isaiah reads like this. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will, also, I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who, dies but a few, who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100 and the one who, die, who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by Yahweh and their descendants with them. We're going we're gonna to finish there in verse, 25, verse 23. We'll see verses 24 and 25 next time. Here we see, in these verses, we see God 
continuing his promise of blessing, specifically blessing for his people in the kingdom, in his promised kingdom. Isaiah speaks about different aspects of God's kingdom. He speaks of the eternal aspect of the kingdom and the thousand-year reign aspect of the kingdom. The thousand-year reign, or as many refer to it, the millennium, the millennium is kind of a preview of the eternal kingdom, of the eternal reign, because the kingdom is about God's right to rule, him displaying his right to rule. He already has the right to rule. Of course, he's always had the right to rule, but he is allowing another to temporarily rule, the ruler of this world, little r, Jesus described as the devil himself. When the kingdom comes, when God God brings his kingdom, he will display the right that he's always had to rule, first for a thousand years and then into eternity forever. As some describe the thousand-year reign, it's kind of like the front porch of eternity. It's the beginning of what will be forever. So let's look at our passage in a bit more detail. Verse 17 reads like this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. The verb create is the Hebrew word bara, which is a word that is used exclusively for God. No one else baras in the Scripture. Only God is the actor for the verb bara. It means to create. In the beginning, God barad the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1, same verb. This verb means to create, to recreate, to fashion, to refashion, to transform, to make something anew. As only God can do, he will destroy the current universe and make a new one. You say, whoa, whoa, no, 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 no. I like this planet. I like where I live. You're going to like the new one much better. Much, this one's going to be boring. This one's going to be lame compared to what is coming. The current universe is infected with a virus. I'm not talking about COVID. I'm not talking about any of the other viruses that are around. I'm talking about the virus of sin. The, the universe is infected with a virus of sin due to fallen angels, due to sinful humanity. And so in order for God to usher in a kingdom that is characterized by righteousness and peace and justice and prosperity and joy and love, all of these beautiful things that the kingdom will be characterized by, in order for him to bring the kingdom and all of the things that are associated with the reign of God, God must purge. He must purge the universe. He must purge it in terms of the current universe and and the, the, the reality that it's infected with sin. But he also has to purge those who are associated with sin. He must vanquish and destroy everyone and everything that is opposed to his kingdom. Those people and those things that are identified with sin are in opposition to the kingdom of God, and he must eliminate them and those things in order for him to usher in his kingdom. Last, saw, last time we saw that God will eliminate the rebels. He will destroy the rebels, as I mentioned just a moment ago, verse 8 of chapter 65. In other words, the rebels are those who are identified with sin. 
which is to say they have not received the righteousness of God through faith. Today, beginning with verse 17, we will see God eliminate the universe, destroy the current universe that is polluted with sin and all of the unrighteousness and pain that sin produces. The current universe is unfit for the blessings of God, for the blessings of his eternal kingdom. Many times the scripture speaks of God destroying and recreating the universe. Isaiah 51 verse 6, for example, says this, Lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath, for the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not wane. The apostle Peter described it this way in 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. The description that he uses of the Lord, the day of the Lord coming like a thief, what he means is, right, the thief doesn't give you advance notice. I'm coming. I'm going to be there at 12.30 tonight and break into your house. That's not what the thief does. The thief comes quickly, unannounced. This is the way the Scripture describes the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a phrase that is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sometimes it's referred to as the day or that day or his day or the Lord's day or God's day. It's a day, not literally a 24-hour period, but a time, an event that describes when the Lord intervenes in human affairs in a spectacular way, either to bless spectacularly, supernaturally, or to judge supernaturally. This is what Peter is describing. Keep reading in verse 11 of Second Peter 3 that is on the screen here. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat, But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which which righteousness dwells. The reason we are given the promise that God will eliminate this universe, destroy it, and make a new one. We're given the promise not so that we can say, wow, that's interesting. We're given the promise, look at Peter's words in verse 12. Excuse me, at the end of verse 11. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct in godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking. And then at the end, in which righteousness dwells. We are told these promises of the destruction and the recreation of the universe so that it changes how we live now. So that it orients us to the reality that everything that you can see and touch and feel will be gone. Or to use the phrase of the old hymn, all the vain things that charm you most will be gone, will be destroyed. Look at how John says it in Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. The promise of God's destruction His elimination of the current universe and his recreation of it should get our minds right. It should get our priorities right. There are only two things that are in existence today. 
on this earth that will last forever. People and God's word. That's it. Everything else on the planet will be destroyed. People and God's word. And so we are to prioritize our lives accordingly. The, un- the new universe will be so spectacular that the old one will be forgotten. The old universe, the one we live in now, as I said earlier, is going to be boring in comparison to the new one. Look at verse 17. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. The former things. This is explaining verse 16's statement that says the former, former troubles are forgotten. Same Hebrew word for former. In God's kingdom, our failures from this life will not haunt us. In God's kingdom, our brokenness, our sins that we've committed in this life will not burden us. That's for two reasons. Reason number one, the new heavens and the new earth will be so so spectacular that our memories that we had when we were in the old earth, the earth that we live in now, will fade away into insignificance. The second reason that we will not be, not be haunted or burdened by our sins, by our failures in this world, is because God will remember our sins no more. You see that at the end of verse 16, where the former troubles will be hidden from his sight. One of the most beautiful blessings and beautiful promises in all the Scripture is that God will remember our sins no more. If he remembered them, then we would remain in judgment and punishment and under his fierce indictment. In God's kingdom, our failures from this life will not burden us and will not haunt us. Now, what I need to be clear about, though, is I'm not suggesting that there are no eternal consequences for our sins. There are eternal consequences for our sins. All believers will be judged. We will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. There will be shame for the believer who lives for herself, who lives independent of God, who lives for himself. There will be shame for that believer. 1 John 2, 28 makes that clear. Although you cannot lose your salvation because it's not dependent on you, don't flatter yourself. You're not that important. You're not that impressive, nor am I. Our salvation is not dependent on us. It's dependent on God. So we can't lose it. We can't lose our salvation, but we can lose our eternal rewards. The shame that the rebellious believer will experience at the judgment seat of of Christ will be short-lived, but the loss of rewards will be forever. We take rewards far too lightly, far too casually. Eternal rewards are one of the great promises that God gives. There are three, basically three reasons in the Scripture, as we've studied before, as to why you should obey God. One is because he's going to take out his belt and whip you. One is because he's going to discipline you and it's going to hurt. That's a perfectly legitimate reason to obey God. Another reason is because of rewards. He promises rewards for obedience. Obedience always precedes blessing. And in the eternal kingdom, we're talking about rewards and blessing forever and ever and ever and ever and ever times a million. That's why I say we take rewards far too lightly. The third reason, which is the best of all three, as to why we are to obey God is because we love Him. But rewards is a perfectly legitimate reason to obey God. One last thing on verse 17 before we move to the next verse. When Isaiah speaks of the new heavens and new earth, 
He's not distinguishing between the eternal kingdom and between the, between the eternal kingdom and the thousand-year reign. I say that because verse 20 is going to talk about people dying. And we know from Revelation 21 that there is no death in the eternal kingdom. Revelation 21, verse 1, reads like this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the Apostle John speaking. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And I heard it, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The former things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. A great, great promise that he will make all things new. And that the time of death, the time of weeping, the time of grief, the time of pain, this veil of tears that we live in today will not be forever But as the prophets often do, Isaiah sees the aspects of the end days as one event because he doesn't have the full progress of Revelation. For example, he doesn't know about the thousand-year reign that is described in Revelation 26 times. Revelation 20, verse 2, is a description of the angel binding the devil. And then the text goes on in verse 2, for a thousand years... And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him until the thousand years were completed. And I saw the souls of them who had been beheaded, that's in the tribulation, because of their testimony of Jesus. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years when the thousand years are completed and then the description goes on the reason we believe in a literal thousand year reign of Christ is because that's what the text says and it says it six times in one chapter this is a literal thousand years Isaiah doesn't know about this thousand years because Isaiah doesn't have the book of Revelation He has only a portion of the scriptures because he's in the Old Testament. He's in the 700-ish B.C. time period. So he only has a portion of the revelation of God, the scripture of God. And so, as we've studied before, this is what the prophets have is, is they have prophetic foreshortening, which is to say... They see mountains, but they don't see the valleys between. And so this is, this is a, a, a chart from Tommy Ice that, um, that, has, uh, that I've made a, a couple of adaptations uh, uh, to. And so, you know, you've got the, the Old Testament prophet, whether it's Isaiah or it's Jeremiah or it's Daniel, and he's seeing simply the mountaintops. So when you have the birth of, of Christ and you have uh, the cross, he sees that, he sees those as just kind of one event. And when Daniel comes along in Daniel 7 and speaks of the Antichrist, he doesn't see these events, he doesn't see the gap of the church in the valley of, of the church age that we're in now, or the son of righteousness 
which is when Christ returns and brings righteousness to the planet, Malachi 4, verses 1 through 6, the kingdom itself, the thousand-year reign, the end of the earth at the end of the thousand-year reign, the eternal heavens and the, the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal city, Jerusalem itself, the prophets, whether it's Isaiah or it's Jeremiah or it's Daniel, they simply see all of these events as one event. They don't see the valleys like the church age or the thousand-year reign or these individual specific time periods simply because they have not had the full revelation, the full progress of revelation that we have today. Often Christians take the full progress of revelation as whatever, just kind of boring. Isaiah would have longed, Jeremiah, Daniel longed to have the full text. They only have portions of it. And sadly today, many Christians find it utterly disinteresting. Look at verse 18 of Isaiah chapter 65. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. Again, bara. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. For emphasis, we get the doubling of words in this verse. We get the doubling of create, the doubling of joy, the doubling of gladness. Two times God says, I bara, I create, just like in verse 17, just like in Genesis 1.1. God is the creator. He has always been and he will always be. Don't be deceived. Don't be duped by what your government tells you. Don't be duped by what the media, the, the entertainment industry, what the culture tells you, what public schools tell you. Don't be duped by the deceiver Darwin. That's a fiction. It's a myth that we come from monkeys. That the universe is an accident, is the product of chance. It's a myth. It's ridiculous. It's a fiction. God has always been the creator, and he always will be. And so what we have here is, as only God can do, he will create Jerusalem. He will recreate Yerushalayim. Make it totally new for eternity into an entirely new city, a, magne- a magnificent city. Out of the new Jerusalem and her people, joy and gladness will flow to and through the entire universe, or to use the phrase that is used here in verse 17, into the new heavens and the new earth. The words joy and gladness are also doubled, repeated twice, either as verbs or nouns. What we're seeing is God emphasizing the intensity of the happiness that he will produce. God has the monopoly on happiness. Every time we try and hunt for happiness somewhere else, not only do we find nothing, do we, does our search yield emptiness, but it actually produces self-destructiveness. God has the monopoly on happiness. And that happiness is something that will be an intense joy and gladness for eternity in the kingdom. Notice it's not just us. We're not the only ones who are happy. It's God who will celebrate. Look at verse 19. And I also rejoice in Jerusalem. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. This is fascinating to me. God is going to rejoice. 
And he says in Jerusalem, in the new Jerusalem, there will be no weeping and no crying. That's because there's not going to be any sin. When God finally vanquishes sin, he will remove sin and all of its cruel byproducts. Unrighteousness, pain, suffering, grief, fear, distrust, illness, death, conflict, war, violence, all these things. All the things that produce weeping and crying will be eliminated in the new Jerusalem. Now, as we read through this passage, we should ask ourselves, who are the people who will be in the new Jerusalem? Verse 18 says that they are her people. Right? It uses the phrase her people, meaning Jerusalem's people. Well, that doesn't tell us that much. It's Jerusalem's people. Okay, so who are the people? Verse 19 says, my people, God's people. Okay, that tells us a little more. But what we're seeing is it's the same group. Her people, the New Jerusalem's people, and God's people are the same group. Hebrews 12, another book written to a Jewish audience, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us who these residents of the New Jerusalem will be. Hebrews 12, verse 22 through 24 reads like this. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. What we're getting in Hebrews 12 is a listing of the residents. It's a listing of the residents of the New Jerusalem. First, God is going to live there. God is the first occupant, the first resident of this city, verse 23. And so Isaiah's statement in chapter 65, verse 19, that God will rejoice in Jerusalem, that makes sense because he's going to live there. This is his eternal abode The reason there is joy unimaginable in the New Jerusalem is because that's God's residence. The reason we describe someone, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has departed this planet for the third heaven, the reason we say that they are in a place of unspeakable joy is because that is the presence of God. This is why the New Jerusalem is described as a place of absolute joy. Now, when verse 23 refers to God, I believe it's referring to the Father and to the Spirit because we see the Son mentioned specifically in verse 24, the second resident of the New Jerusalem, Jesus Christ himself. The third resident are the angels. The angels will live in the New Jerusalem with us forever, verse 22. The fourth resident are the, is the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, verse 23. That's church-age believers. The fifth resonant or group of resonants are the spirits of the righteous made perfect, verse 23. I believe that's all believers from all of the ages, from all of the dispensations other than the church-age because the church-age believers are described separately. So this is Old Testament saints, tribulational saints, and millennial saints. The residents of the New Jerusalem are going to be impressive. And it begins with God himself. 
God in the flesh, Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, the angels, church-age believers, and believers of all ages. One more passage on the New Jerusalem that we need to look at because you really can't talk about the New Jerusalem. You can't do a study of the New Jerusalem, even a brief one like we're doing now, without looking at Revelation 21. Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation 21. In that passage, the Apostle John gives us this rich description of what the New Jerusalem will look like. Revelation 21, verse 10, reads like this. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain. This is John speaking. And showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of, out of heaven from God. Stop there just for one second. It's coming down out of heaven from God, which suggests, we're not going to get into this today, which suggests that perhaps the new Jerusalem is there now in heaven now. It suggests that it's the abode of God now. We'll look at that at a, at, a, at a later date. Showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 11. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone and as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Verse 12. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the 12 gates <clears throat> and at the gates 12 angels and names were written on them which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. So we see right up front that Israel plays a central role in the New Jerusalem. That makes sense because it's not called the New Beijing or the New Los Angeles. It's called the New Jerusalem. This is a city named after God's people. Keep reading in verse 13. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The 12 apostles, of course, were Jewish Again, we see a, a focus, a central focus on Israel in the New Jerusalem. But the apostles are the apostles of the church. So church age, also, church age believers also play a very important role in the heavenly city. Keep reading verse 15. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. This is an angel speaking with John. The city is laid out as a square. And its length is as great as its width. In other words, it's a cube. The city is, is, a, is a cube. It's a, it's, it's a square. And he measured the city with a rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its walls, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. That's an interesting disclosure we get there. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh Jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, 
like transparent glass. Verse 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. As we saw in Hebrews 12, God and Jesus live in this city forever. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. What does that mean? Why did you close the gates in an ancient kingdom? Because you were afraid. You were afraid that a foreign army would come in. In this city, in the heavenly city, there is no fear. There's absolute security and absolute peace. That's what's described here by this phrase, the gates will never be closed Verse 26, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The way your name is written in the Lamb's book of life is by trusting in the Lamb, trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. This is an incredible description of your future residence, of your future abode forever. It's the new Jerusalem. Please turn back to Isaiah chapter 65. In Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20, the setting is going to shift away from the new heavens and the new earth, away from the new Jerusalem to the thousand-year reign. Look at verse 20 of chapter 65. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days, For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. In the millennium, which is what this is describing, God will bring extreme prosperity to the planet, not perfect environment to the planet, not perfect prosperity to the planet. That's reserved for the eternal kingdom. He will bring very close to perfect environment, very close to perfect prosperity and peace, because we know from Revelation 20 that there will be a revolution against God when the devil is released at the end of the thousand-year reign, the Gog and Magog revolution. So it's not perfect environment, but it's as close as we will get here on this planet. Perfect environment and perfect prosperity and perfect peace is reserved for the eternal kingdom that will immediately follow the thousand-year reign. In the millennium, what we're seeing in verse 20 is that in the millennium, death will be extremely rare for two reasons. Number one, sin will be almost non-existent. Almost non-existent. People are still going to have sin natures, but Christ will rule, the Scripture describes, with a rod of iron. That means he will reign with absolute authority, restraining the wickedness that is inherent in humanity, the brokenness, the sinfulness, the evil that every human being has a bent towards. I hope you don't exercise that bent. We shouldn't follow that bent, but it's in us. It's just who we are. I wish I could say something different. I wish I could come here and say, I'm a great person. You're great people. But I'd be lying to you if I said that about myself or about you. You have a bent. You have a craving. Now, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're never going to be sinless, but we should sin less. 
You should be walking in God's ways, studying His Word, confessing your sin. When it's a thought before, it's an action. But the reality is the sin nature is going to be on this planet, among human beings, even in the millennial reign. That's why I say that the prosperity will be almost perfect because there's still going to be sin nature. But when someone acts on that sin nature, God is going to enforce justice and righteousness and peace. God in the flesh will do it. Jesus will do it immediately because he will rule rule with a rod of iron. The second reason why death will be extremely rare in the millennium. The first is that sin will be almost non-existent. The second reason is because Christ will transform human life by providing incredible health. Lifespans will be much longer like they were before the flood when people lived 900 years or so. Seth, Enosh, Methuselah, Noah, they all lived in the 900-year phrase or the 900-year time period Apparently, Christ will eliminate those diseases that kill all of us before age 100. Diseases that we've seen before, whether those are strokes or Alzheimer's or cancer or diabetes or heart disease, whatever they are, God's going to eliminate those. Jesus, God in the flesh, will eliminate those so that when someone dies at 100 years old, it's going to be shocking. It's going to be a tragedy. (gasps) Now someone lives to 100, we say, wow, that's incredible. But then someone doesn't live to 800 years, 900 years. We say something went wrong somewhere. Something terrible happened if someone died at the age of 100. That's the description here. Keep reading in verse 21. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. What does this mean? What does God mean when he makes these statements that someone else isn't going to live in the house that you built? And someone else isn't going to eat the fruit of the vineyard that you planted. And you're going to wear out the work of your hands. What does all this mean? This means that lifespans are going to be so long that they're going to wear, that the lifespan is going to exceed the life of the products that we build. Today, someone goes out and buys a hundred year old house, and they're like, oh, hey, that's cool. I'm going to redo that, redo the floors, redo the inside. And the reason it's neat to them is because generations of people have lived there. Not so in the millennium. Right? I mean, we're in a building, or that wing of the building was built in 1889. So depending on how you calculate a generation, if you calculate it based on a 40-year time period, there's been at least... There, there have been multiple generations in this building. There have been generations upon generations in this building. And the building is still here. That's part of the reason why we like that building. is because it's got the history to it. And so we have these generations, but the building outlasts the generations. And so... If you have 40 years as your, your calculation for a generation, we've had at least three generations in that church building. Well, it's going to be the opposite in the millennium. You're going to build a house, 
and the bricks and the mortar and the sheetrock are going to fade away and you're going to have to rebuild the house because you're going to live longer than the house. They're going to live longer than the church buildings and they're going to have to rebuild the church building. That generation that built it, not a gen- one day we're going to have to rebuild that church. But that's three, four generations later than the Germans who built it initially in 1889. And so that's the description, this kind of poetic description of how long life periods will be. And that's why you have this reference to wearing out the work of your hands. Now this passage also reveals something to us about work. Work will always exist. Work in the thousand-year reign and work in eternity. In the thousand-year reign, you're going to return in resurrection, in a resurrection body, to work, right? You see these descriptions, these kind of paintings of the saints with, with a halo and sitting on a cloud, strumming a, a harp, la, 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 la. And that's as if that's our eternal destiny. No, it's not. You're going to be working, Because God has designed work as a blessing. As a blessing. And so there is great dignity and honor in work. Remember Adam and Eve? He said, work. Before the fall, he said, work. In Genesis 2.15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Hebrew word for cultivate is the Hebrew word eved, which literally means to work or to serve. God has hardwired us to work, to serve Him. The punishment in Genesis 3 was not to work. The punishment was that work would be more difficult, to use the the way the NIV translates it. You would work by the sweat of your brow or the thorns and thistles of the ground would make your work more difficult to, to have produce in terms of crops. God has designed us to work. Work is a blessing from God, and we will always work. In work, we reflect the image of our Maker. In work, we reflect the activity of our Maker because God is always at work. Always. Now. He even worked on the seventh day. I know the Scripture says He rested on the seventh day. He did rest on the seventh day. He rested from His creation, but He didn't rest from all of His work because He was still keeping Adam's heart going to thump, to thump, to thump. And He was still keeping this planet in this course in comparison to the sun just a little bit closer and Adam would have fried. And just a little farther away and Adam would have frozen. God was keeping the planets and the stars in their courses on the seventh day after he'd already made them on the sixth day. So God's always working. He rested from his creative act, but not from his maintenance act of maintaining the things that he created. God is always at work producing that which is of value. And so when we work, we reflect the image of our maker. We reflect the activity of our maker. He rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired, he's omnipotent, but because his work was completed. We're to rest as well. We rest because we're tired. We rest because we have to recharge the battery. Now, sadly, sinful humanity takes God's blessing always. This is the modus operandi of humanity. We always, without exception, take the blessings of God 
and pervert them. Every single blessing that God gives us, we twist it, we pervert it into something else. Every blessing. It's just the nature of our brokenness. And so what sinful man does is we take the blessing of work and we make it an idol. People make their work their idol. Are we to work hard? Absolutely. Are we to work productively? No question. But we're not to make work our idol. Ultimately, we work to reflect the glory of God. We don't work to feed our lusts for money and power and things and acceptance and identity. You know the scorecard, right? You know the world's scorecard. She's a lawyer. He's an engineer. She's a doctor. He's making six figures. She's making seven figures. Eight figures. Wow. So accomplished. That's the world scorecard. By the way, there's nothing, you make seven figures, bully for you. Good for you. If God has blessed you in that regard, great. Use it for his glory. But there's nothing wrong with any of those things, with being a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, a welder, a teacher, a whatever. If God has called you there, then work there and work hard and serve him well. But that's not your identity. That may be your calling, what he has called you to do, but that's not your identity. Your identity is a servant of your master. And through that work, you're, you should be reflecting the glory of your master, not feeding your sinful appetites. So be careful what the world teaches you. We work to reflect the glory of our maker. Keep reading in verse 23. They will not labor in vain. They will not labor in vain. In the kingdom, God will undo the Genesis 3 curse that makes work difficult. Work will be much easier, which is to say work will be much more productive and therefore more meaningful. Today, work can be frustrating and burdensome because we live and we perform the work in a fallen, broken world full of hindrances to our divine calling. Not so in the kingdom, because God will make work much more productive. This is why it says we will not labor in vain. Look at the end of verse 23. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by Yahweh and their descendants with them. In the kingdom, God's blessing will flow to and through the generations. Because what we're seeing here at the end of verse 23 are multiple generations. We see three of them. We see the they. The they are my chosen ones from verse 22. These are the believers. These are those who seek God, which is to say they have trusted in Yahweh. We trust in, just to be clear, we trust in Yahweh just like they trusted in Yahweh for salvation in the Old Testament. Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed in Yahweh and it was credited to him as righteousness. We trust in Yahweh in the flesh and it is reckoned to us as righteousness, imputed righteousness. Salvation has always been the same from generation to generation. It has always been by faith as a result of God's grace. 
It's always been by faith in the Lord. So the three generations that we see are the they, believers, the chosen chosen ones from verse 22. They're going to bear children, and their children will have descendants. That's three generations. In the thousand-year reign, there will be a baby boom like no other baby boom because there's going to be peace and prosperity. There's going to be a population explosion, and the prosperity is going to be so intense that people are going to be making babies and babies and babies and babies. And this, these generations are going to flow multifold in the thousand-year reign. And so the description that we get today in this passage that we've studied is the description of intense prosperity that God will bring in terms of peace, long life, long, long life in terms of great health, stability, and multiple generations. This is going to be a time of unmatched blessing. And we'll see more of these prophecies next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you encourage us by it. We ask that you remind us of these things, that, that they may encourage us in a world that is fallen and broken. Help us remember that our destiny is in your eternal kingdom, a place of great peace and joy and wonder. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.